Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Got a lot to do today, and um, I just want to let you know at the outset that in the second half of our program today, we will be having one of our Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segments. Today we're going to look at the quest for unity, a.k.a. ecumenism, which is one of the uh, most controversial of the uh, topics of the documents of Vatican II. There's a decree on ecumenism uh, that came along also with the decree on the Church of the Modern World, the Declaration of Religious Liberty, uh, Nostra Aetate, which is a decree on um, the relationship of the Church of non-Christian religions. There's a, a whole uh, series of uh, events and or documents from Vatican II that have been um, or the implementation of which have been contentious, but uh, ecumenism perhaps uh, chief among them. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Also, uh, over the last three weeks, <clears throat> pardon me, we've been talking about the proper celebration of the Novus Ordo Mise, the new Mass, as opposed to the traditional Mass, which is a, a more common topic here. And uh, I think that we've demonstrated over the last three weeks that uh, the post-conciliar popes from Paul VI to Benedict XVI have taught that there is no rupture between the pre-conciliar and post-conciliar church in regard to her formal teaching or even the basic outline and spirituality of the new mass that came after the council versus the traditional Latin mass. However, while calling for a hermeneutic of continuity, I think Benedict XVI recognized what I refer to as a rupture of experience, right? It's like the church teaches one thing on paper, but it might be different from your actual experience, you know, in a parish church. And the the truth is that many of the faithful today are profoundly estranged from the devotional life of their ancestors, the, the faith of our fathers, as the old song goes. In other words, even though there was technically no rupture, uh, with the Church's tradition at Vatican II, practically speaking, most Catholics are living as if there had been such a rupture. Uh, and Vatican II takes the blame. I mean, it's, it routinely uses a justification for all manner uh, of novelty that it did not uh, promote. And uh, you have to assume that this was not the intent of the majority of the Council Fathers, who, who included not only St. John Paul II, but also Marcel Lefebvre. So I consider it a big step, and as you already know if you've been listening, uh, as a a big step towards the return to the vision of the Council Fathers regarding the liturgy, um, that a a big step was taken with the 2010 publication of the new English translation of the Roman Missal, what I would refer to as the corrected translation of the Roman Missal. It's more faithful uh, to the Latin, it's more accurate, um, than the previous translation, and it's also more respectful of the structure and the substance of the Holy Mass. And I think it's been uh, rendered all the richer through the restoration of some of the formal language that better preserves the, the traditional character and style of the Roman rite. So, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, or behold the Lamb of God. Um, only say the word, my soul shall be healed. Right? My, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, etc. So along with this corrected translation, there's a number of concrete steps that individual priests can take to begin to heal that rupture of experience 
And, and beyond correcting liturgical abuses, a la Redemptionis Sacramentum, which we've been talking about over these last weeks, I mentioned at the uh, end of last week's show that there are concrete steps that priests can take right here and right now, above and beyond the correction of liturgical abuse, or after he's corrected liturgical abuses. And I hope that these suggestions are going to gain traction, uh, especially among younger priests and seminarians who are, I think, uh, very much looking forward to celebrating both the Novus Ordo Mass and the traditional Latin Mass, but who may not now have that opportunity, uh, you know, to celebrate the old rite because of Traditionis Custodes. So, first uh, and simplest way that a uh, priest can enrich the celebration of the new order of the Mass, starting right now, is only choosing those options from the many options available uh, in the general instruction, but choosing only those that are most consistent with tradition. So uh, Dr. Peter Kosnevsky used to refer to this as the continuity principle. Although I I believe today that he has, uh, I think, unfortunately, just abandoned any real hope for the new order of the Mass. But he was the one that coined that term, continuity principle. In any case, some sample choices. Number one, Father may choose to read, or even better, chant, the entrance and the communion antiphons, right from the Missal. Number two, he can make use of penitential rite A, which is the confidior and the absolution and the Kyrie. Uh, number three, at the invitations to prayer, he might make use of the conventional translation of brethren rather than the optional brothers and sisters or the abusive sisters and brothers. Number four, he can encourage the lay lectors, um, if he makes use of them, to do the same at the beginning of the readings, right? The readings of St. Paul. Uh, the missile says brethren or brothers and sisters. Well, why not go with the first one? Why not go with the, with the uh, primary instead of the optional? Um, he can, Father can pray Eucharistic prayer number one, which is essentially the Roman canon, the traditional Roman canon, and pray it in its entirety. Because again, in the, in the New Order of the Mass, there's an option to drop the litany of saints, but he can pray the whole darn thing and be more consistent, again, with the tradition of the Church. <clears throat> Number six, he can hold his thumb and forefingers together from um, the consecration until the ablutions, which was the custom um, in you know pre-New Liturgy. And number seven, speaking of the ablutions, which and that's the, the cleansing of the liturgical vessels, uh, he can perform the ablutions not only thoroughly and you know uh, uh, respectfully, but uh, in the traditional manner, using wine and then water and then wine again. Number eight, use incense whenever appropriate. Uh, number nine, when um, you're reciting the words of consecration, to bow noticeably over the host and chalice, and to pray the prayer slowly and deliberately. And number 10, to admit the invitation, let us offer one another the sign of peace, which is optional after the Pax Domini, right? You, you can say, the, the Lord be with you, and with your, the peace of the Lord be with you always, and with your spirit, but he doesn't have to um, stop and have everybody shake hands with their neighbor. That can be omitted. Uh, number 11, bow his head when he reads the name of Jesus. I shouldn't say, you know, I'm back up. I shouldn't say be omitted because it's an option in the first place. Okay? Uh, just make that distinction. Number 11, bow his head at the name of Jesus, in the name of Mary, at the name of the saint of the day, 
and then instructs his readers, number 12, to do the same. The point is that all of these options are permitted by the Novus Order rubrics. They're all in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. In fact, most of them are the norm and not an, you know, it's the first option, if you will, the, the preferential option, let's put it that way. Um, and all of the things that I just rattled off depend primarily on the priest, uh, with the exception of, you know, the use of incense or the uh, nutritional uh, ablution, which would require some training of the servers. None of these suggestions um, entail any special preparation or training or expense. So father doesn't have to ask for any money. He doesn't have to have any meetings. He doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't have to convince, uh, convince any committees that it's a good idea. Uh, all he has to do is just start implementing it. And you'll also notice that none of these options require the use of one single word of Latin. And again, so they can be implemented immediately starting this Sunday, starting tomorrow. Father, if you're within the sound of my voice. And you know what? That being said, uh, it really isn't that hard to train the congregation to sing the Sanctus or the Angus Dei or some other parts of the ordinary in Latin. Uh, the, the priest just needs to start doing it or to have the, the cantor or the choir to, to do it, and the people will follow along. You know, the Sanctus and the Angus Dei are, in Latin are, are uh, typically in the Missalette, or at least in the music issue. So all you need to do to have the people sing along is just put the numbers up on the board, the way you would with any of the other, you know, hymns and so forth, any other song. And after all, it, uh, Pope St. Pius VI, when he imposed the Novus Ordo, um, and, and as Benedict XVI reiterated when he promulgated some more in Pontificum, Vatican II itself calls for the laity to be able to recite in Latin to pray or sing the parts of the Mass that are proper to them. Most especially, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium points out the Lord's Prayer, right, the Pater Noster, and the Credo, or the Creed. And I should also add that I've been to uh, several uh, Novus Ordo Masses in different parishes where the congregation actually chants the Gloria in Latin. So I know all of this is, is, is doable. In fact, the, the Agnus Dei and the Sanctus uh, are getting fairly common. It was one of the, uh, one of the fruits of Samorum Pontificum. So <clears throat> all of these things, you know, even if you don't do the Latin, there's a lot of concrete steps that Father can make to make the, the, the celebration of the Novus Ordo Mass more consistent with the tradition of the Church. And just by, by using the, the, the preferential option, using the norm rather than, you know, uh, some of the options we've become accustomed to. Last word on this, the, the new order of the Mass concludes with the words, the Mass is ended, go forth to love and serve the Lord, or words to that effect. There's a couple of different ones. And this ending, though, is also a beginning. We're sent forth to love and serve the Lord so that our worship can continue in lots of ways. You know, St. Paul says uh, that uh, in sacred scripture that worship's a way of life. You know, Catholic life is not reducible just to the liturgy. But in, in everything that we do, we can worship God, as St. John says, in spirit and in truth. Okay, we'll be right back with lots more right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In the uh, traditional liturgical calendar, this week begins with the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. So we're going to go and take a look, as is our custom, at the Gospel for this uh, last Sunday. Also reminding you that later on in the program we are going to be talking about the Quest for Christian Unity. It is a Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segment wherein we're going to talk about um, ecumenism and what the Council really had to say about it. But in the meantime, the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. This is from Matthew 22, 34 through 46, and I did get a request to repeat the name of the translation that I've been using. It is the New Catholic Bible translation, which is um, it's an approved translation, approved for uh, study and for personal devotion, and it is published by the Catholic Book Publishing Company, or I think now they're the Catholic Book Publishing Corporation, but in any case, uh, that'll get you there. Catholic Book Publishing, the New Catholic Bible. And this is from Matthew 22, 34 through 46. When the Pharisees learned that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and to test him, one of them, a lawyer, asked this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the law and the prophets depends on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were assembled together, Jesus asked them this question, What is your opinion about the Christ? Whose son is he? They replied, He is the son of David. He responded, How is it then that David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, and from that day onward, no one dared to ask him any further questions. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So let's start with uh, Jesus' question to the Pharisees. What is your opinion about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, Jesus put this question to the Pharisees in order that by their own answer, he might convince them that the Messiah was not merely a descendant of David, but the Son of God, uh, the only begotten one from eternity, uh, on which account he called himself David's Lord. Now, Christians know very well that Christ is Lord. We, we uh, profess that he is our, uh, our Lord, our teacher, our, our lawgiver, redeemer, and savior, the, the, the Son of God. But although we profess to believe all of this, many Christians deny it in practice by not following his teaching and by not observing his commandments. It's well to remember, what, what did he himself say? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also, in the previous verses of Matthew 22, uh, prior to verse 34, where this passage starts, Jesus had answered a question put to him uh, by the Sadducees about the resurrection. And it's the very question that the Sadducees had used against the Pharisees. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, and the Pharisees did. 
And you might think that the Pharisees would be glad that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees on this issue. But even though our Lord had handed them this theological victory, the Pharisees were more interested in trying to trap him themselves than in, you know, going to him to learn the truth. And by the way, the question uh, of, from the doctor of the law, the question he asks, uh, which is the greatest commandment, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments here. You know, the, the rabbis of Jesus' day had divided the commandments uh, of the Mosaic Law into this long string of 248 precepts and 365 prohibitions. So that's more than 600 precepts, 600 laws. He says, and, and of course, and there were endless disputes about which were uh, more or less important. And so they ask him this to test him, it says, and Jesus takes the opportunity to just bring them back to the Decalogue, back to the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he unifies those commandments into the two essentials, love of God and love of neighbor. And more than that, he does so by quoting directly from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said that everything in the law and the prophets depends on these two commandments because all of the other commandments are contained to them. They're they're like umbrellas that cover the whole law. Uh, And whoever fulfills the two greatest commandments fulfills the whole law. Whoever loves God with his whole heart doesn't murmur against God. He doesn't dishonor his name by cursing and swearing. He doesn't desecrate the Sabbath day because he knows that all of that is offensive to God. And on the contrary, he also hopes in God and gives thanks and praise to God and sanctifies Sundays and holy days because he knows it to be pleasing to God. Uh, And he observes the precepts of the church because he knows that it's the will of God that uh, we should hear the church. So the good Christian honors his parents. He does no injury to his neighbor. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't steal. He doesn't slander anyone. He doesn't bear false witness. He pronounces no unjust judgment. He's not envious, malicious, unmerciful. But on the contrary, practices the corporal and spiritual works of mercy towards everyone. And all of this because out of love of God, he loves his neighbor as himself. And so the two great commandments of love fulfill all the commandments. See, this is looking at God's law positively. And, you know, I think Jesus is saying, don't be so concerned about what you shouldn't do as to, you know, that you should concentrate on what you should do, what you can do, to show love for God and for others. You know, for the Pharisees uh, in the ancient uh, world and even today, uh, disputes over the interpretation and the application for them of these, you know, 600-plus precepts and prohibitions had become uh, as important to them as the law itself. And I think that, again, that's, that's a danger, especially for the intellectual, to fall into this, you know, majoring on the minors and going down these rabbit holes when really God wants you to love him and your neighbor, and that's more be what you should be concentrating on. Um, the real issue, of course, for our Lord back in the, the biblical times was when the religious leaders told people to obey all these rules but didn't obey them themselves. Um, or, or when they obeyed the rules, but not to honor God, but just to make themselves look good. 
So, you know, in most cases, Jesus didn't condemn what the, Paris, uh, the Pharisees taught, but he condemned what they were. He condemned them as hypocrites. And that's what we see in, in the next chapter. In Matthew 23, verse 2, he says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, be careful to do what they tell you, but do not follow their example, for they do not practice what they preach. And that's no nonsense. God made us to know him, to love him, and to serve him. And these things follow one after another. If we know God, we love him. If we love him, we serve him. And God made us to know him. Now, there's an old story about a good Catholic man who had an atheist as a house guest. And uh, at dinner, the atheist started boasting. He said, I'm proud to say that I'm the only one in this room who has the honor to say, I do not believe in God. And his host, who was a man who knew God and therefore loved him, replied, he said, You're mistaken, sir. You share that honor with my dog. The difference is, my dog doesn't boast about it. See, uh, unlike the atheist and the dog, uh, Catholics have a knowledge of God. And so we should do our best to appreciate that and to make it grow. Now, I promised that we were going to have a Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segment today. And it kind of ties in to what we've been talking about here in, in this week's uh, Sunday Gospel. And as you know, I happen to believe in the hermeneutic of continuity proposed by Benedict XVI, which means I do not believe that Vatican II was a, a rupture, that it was a break with the tradition of the Church. You know, even though some people are, are committed to that idea, I take Pope St. John XXIII at his word when he said at the opening of Vatican II, quote, the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way it is presented, another. And so he said, the greatest concern of the Council must be, quote, the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. Now, does that sound to you like somebody who wanted to restart the church from zero? No, me neither. So the point of the hermeneutic of continuity, right, this interpretational principle that uh, we should apply to Vatican II, is that we would interpret those documents in light of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith, rather than making the mistake of trying to reinterpret the sacred deposit of, of Christian doctrine in light of Vatican II, which is a fine definition for the hermeneutic of rupture. And there were competing currents at Vatican II. I mean, these documents sometimes can be dense. They can be difficult when you, when you approach them, because you had these two um, main currents of ressourcement, which is a French word that means... Uh, uh, a return to the sources, okay? They, they want sort of a restoration and a renewal by going back to doing things the way they did in the early church. And then you had the advocates of aggiornamento, which is a, an Italian word that means updating. So you've got people that want to go back to the first century, and you've got a people that want to boldly go where no one has gone before. And I think also the third current was probably the majority of the council fathers who 
you know, just wanted to, to essentially broker a truce <laughs> between the two extremes to, to take that middle way where we, you know, say, yeah, this is what the church has always taught, and here's how we can present that in a way that's comprehensible to modern man. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's like, a, like a, the, the documents become camels. That's my, my father said a camel is a, is a horse that was designed by a committee. So you have that, you know, some of the times these Vatican II documents can have that uh, uh, flavor, you know. It's reflected in the documents that, that all three of those currents are present in the same document. And it can create the impression of uh, contradiction. The point of all this, though, is that even with these competing currents at Vatican II, the documents can admit of a traditional interpretation. You know, even what are probably the most, uh, two of the most controversial documents of the Council on ecumenism and on religious liberty. And so we're going to uh, talk about ecumenism today, and I'll tell you what got me started on this road to uh, doing a program about it when we come back with uh, lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Um, I started down the road to this program, as I was saying uh, before the break. Actually, it was because I got an email that uh, an email I received from a fellow in the UK earlier this month. And um, I suspect you've heard people say, um, I used to be Catholic, but now I'm Christian. Or people will ask you, oh, are you Catholic or are you Christian? And I hope that you took that opportunity to inform them that not only are Catholics Christians, but that Catholics uh, are, in fact, the original Christians, that the Catholic Church is the world's largest and oldest Christian community, and the only one that was actually founded by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, the email that I got, though, was the other side of the coin. Uh, And I'll read you some of it. It begins, Hello, Matthew Arnold. I've been listening to a CD you did on the Bible, an excellent talk. Though you did make a mistake, and I'm always happy to be corrected. He says, we both believe Jesus founded but one church, yet you call Protestants Christians. But, he goes on, if Protestants are Christian, then, there's no, then there is salvation outside the Holy Catholic Church, and that's heresy. I didn't see this mistake for 30 years until an incident happened. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't relate what the incident was, but he continues. He says, you have the Baptist cult, the Evangelical cult, the Presbyterian cult, the Episcopalian cult, the Anglican cult, the Methodist cult, the cult of England, etc., including the Orthodox. Only Catholics are the true and original Christians, he says, no one else. Protestantism is 40,000 man-made cults, all caps, which are pagan, all caps. Now, and and then, of course, to prove his point, he's going to back it up, he sends me to uh, a YouTube video about why non-Catholics are not Christians, because obviously, if you want to know the truth about the Catholic faith, the place to go is YouTube. (laughs) 
Now, this fellow, uh, he had a couple of things right, okay? Number one, Christ only founded the one church, and that church subsists in the Catholic Church alone. More on that in a minute. And number two, Christian communities that do not have apostolic succession are not properly called churches. For example, we would say the Baptist Church or the Methodist Church. They're more properly referred to as ecclesial communities. Uh, But the Orthodox, on the other hand, they have uh, valid uh, sacraments. They have um, apostolic succession. So even though they are schismatic, they're not in union with the Pope, they are, in fact, uh, they can be properly called particular churches. Now, the problem that this fellow has, of course, is a misunderstanding of the Church's teaching, uh, the old axiom, extra ecclesia nulla salus, outside the Church, no salvation, coined by St. Cyprian uh, back in the 4th century. And uh, I don't think that there has been any um, assertion about the Church that has been as misunderstood as this one. And long before Vatican II, back in 1949, under Pope Pius XII, Rome issued uh, an official clarification that said this axiom is not to be taken uh, in a strictly literal sense. And um, this was consistent with um, Pope Pius IX back in the 19th century and Pope Clement XI back in the 17th century. And, and uh, going all the way forward to the year 2000, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith under Cardinal Ratzinger and with the approval of Pope John Paul II, put out a document called Dominus Jesus that once more asserted the Church's proper uh, understanding, the Church's actual teaching regarding the axiom extra ecclesia nulla salus. But I want, you know, we're talking Vatican II here, and will the real Vatican II please stand up? What does Vatican II teach? Well, in the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, number 14, Vatican II, basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, This council uh, teaches that the church, now sojourning on earth as an exile, is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism, as through a door, people enter the church. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter it or to remain in it, could not be saved. That is the teaching of Vatican II. Will the real Vatican II please stand up? What does it teach? No salvation outside the Church. But you see the the understanding that you have to understand, you have to know that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ. And then if you would refuse to enter it or to remain in it, you can't be saved. Um, But it is possible uh, to be outside the church through no fault of your own. And and those persons, you know, if they're trying to follow God's will as they know it, uh, they can be presumed to be uh, in a state of grace and to belong to the church inwardly, though not outwardly. Um, And this is referring to people that have never heard the gospel, you know, that that they belong to the soul of the church, so to speak. But they're deprived of the many channels of grace that are found only in the true church. Holy sacrifice of the Mass, the real presence in the Eucharist, the sacramental absolution of sins. This is true 
also of our separated brethren. That they have, they have, but they have valid baptism. And I think that's the real issue that this fellow has, that he fails to appreciate um, the sacrament of baptism, that you can be validly baptized even though you are outside the visible structure of the Catholic Church. I've been teaching RCIA for 10 years. I have had the, the, uh, the honor to personally uh, assist scores of people to embrace the fullness of the Catholic faith. But when non-Catholic Christians convert, we don't re-baptize them. You know, they're, if they're validly baptized, uh, that baptism uh, confers an indelible mark on the soul. It's a permanent character. It cannot be repeated. Vatican II says you enter the church through baptism as through a door. So a baptized person is united to the church, however imperfectly. Now, what do you call such a person? Well, uh, according to the decree on ecumenism, all who have been justified by faith in baptism are incorporated into Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians. So with due respect to my uh, British interlocutor, I didn't make a mistake. Now, with that in mind... Lumen Gentium, Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, says, the sole Church of Christ, okay, the one Church of Christ, is that which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it. This Church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. This is Lumen Gentium 8. Now, I know that some traditionalist Catholics, of which this fellow is, is, uh, uh, is one, they stumble over the term subsists in, because they would point out that the Council of Trent defines the Church simply as uh, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. And so, and doesn't saying that the true church only subsists in the Catholic Church, doesn't that mean it could also subsist in some other church as well? Well, the short answer to that question is no. The Vatican II definition makes a distinction like that between uh, the philosophical distinction between substance and accidents. Lumen Gentium tells us that many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the church. So the written word of God, yes, the scriptures, um, the life of grace, right, conferred by baptism, faith, hope, and charity, as well as visible elements, right? There are things that uh, we have in common that you can see. But these elements are not the substance of the true church. The Second Vatican Council's decree on ecumenism explains, for it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone which is the universal help towards salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. It was to the apostolic college alone, of which Peter is the head, that we believe our Lord entrusted all the blessings of the new covenant, in order to establish on earth the one body of Christ into which all those should be fully incorporated who belong in any way to the people of God. So if, if you're a Christian, you need to be Catholic. The substance of the one true church belongs to the Catholic Church alone and will for all eternity. Uh, it's also the decree on ecumenism that says, in fact, 
this one only church of God from its very beginning, there arose certain rifts, which the apostle strongly censures as damnable. And that's a reference to Galatians 1.8, where St. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you other than the one we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. But the document continues in subsequent centuries, much more serious dissensions appeared and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which, often enough, men on both sides were to blame. However, one cannot charge with the sin of separation those who at present are born into these communities that, that resulted from such separation, and in them are brought up in the faith of Christ, and the Catholic Church accepts them Pardon me, with respect and affection as brothers. So today's Protestant or evangelical, uh, they're, not, they're not like Catholics who have rejected the church and embraced heresy. They're people that are born and raised in a centuries-long Christian tradition. That such a tradition is you know, non-Catholic or perhaps even anti-Catholic, it's, it's not their fault. And that's why the church actually lifted the, the excommunications on the Protestants from the 16th century. But they're still in error. And they still lack the many graces attached to full communion with the church. Hence, ecumenism. Now we're going to talk about what ecumenism isn't. What, that ecumenism is not evangelization. And that there, there is a real danger associated with misunderstanding ecumenism or misrepresenting ecumenism and what that is and what to do about it we will talk about in (laughs) some detail in the final segment of our program coming up right after these messages you're listening to no nonsense catholic on virgin most powerful radio stay with us and we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So we're talking about ecumenism, and I said before the break that ecumenism is not evangelization. It's about, you know, when we're talking about uh, um, non-Catholic Christians, which uh, Vatican II refers to as our separated brethren, that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that there are real divisions that need to be overcome. And uh, so it's not evangelization because, you know, I, our, our separated brethren... Uh, know the gospel. God loves you. Uh, you were separated from God by sin. Jesus Christ uh, paid the debt of our sins through his sacrifice on the cross, and we need to accept that gift. But that's just the beginning. You know, Jesus says you have to believe and be baptized. You need to receive the Holy Eucharist. You need to be catechized. You need to be sacramentalized as well as evangelized. But ecumenism is uh, about doing things in common with our separated brethren that will, you know, bring us closer together and hopefully, uh, in the words of the the Vatican Council, will impel towards uh, this full communion. Now, there is a danger to ecumenism, and we're going to talk about ecumenism in some length, but we're not going to do it today because (laughs) we only have this last segment uh, left in the program. I'm sorry, I spent so much time setting things up that I didn't get to the meat of it, but we'll do it next week. We'll talk about, uh, continue to talk about ecumenism. Uh, Because it's also not an end in itself. Ecumenism is the quest for unity. Ecumenism is a means to an end. But the danger with ecumenism 
is um, and you know not understanding it properly, uh, it can lead to or promote religious indifference, which is extremely dangerous heresy and extremely widespread in the church today. You know, all the things that I've read have have emphasized that the Catholic Church is the one church founded by Jesus Christ, that the, the Church of Jesus Christ, its substance is here in the Catholic Church and only in the Catholic Church and will remain in the Catholic Church uh, exclusively and forever. But that there are these other elements that are outside, and those elements will compel to Christian unity. Um, but indifference is the idea that it really doesn't matter what church you belong to. That one church is pretty much uh, the same as the next. That the one church is as good as another. Uh, in its more extreme form, even that one religion is as good as another. That they're all basically the same. And it doesn't matter what religion you belong to or, or if you're a Christian, what church you belong to. As long as you believe in Jesus, that's all that matters. And that is extremely widespread today. And so I think we need to go back and look at uh, what Vatican II said about ecumenism, because one of the things that, that is made as an as a, uh, uh, important point is that Catholics especially should be saddened by the divisions in Christendom, that, that we, uh, first of, amongst all Christians, must uh, pray and work to, you know, uh, to further the, the, the full communion, you know, the, and that, that working for Christian unity is essential to Catholic life. And I'm sure that most people, uh, I mean, even a good many Catholics don't really see it that way. Okay, um, I, I want to mention this. As we go forward, we're going to be looking at these things, uh, and there's been a great deal of acrimony, uh, both from the liberal and traditional Catholics, over the document on ecumenism, the teaching on ecumenism. And, and it, I think it's only fair to say that any number of ecumenical gestures that have been undertaken in the decades since the Council uh, are it's, it's style over substance. You know, there's a lot of symbolism, but there's not, you know, a lot of sizzle, but no steak. And, and it has given that, that faulty impression that ecumenism is an end to itself, and that the Catholic Church is actually just fine that there are these divisions in Christendom. But ecumenism is about taking a first step towards healing those divisions. But how do you really interpret this uh, document properly? How do you employ that hermeneutic of continuity? Well, I turned to Father Lawrence Lavazic. Uh, he's Father Lavazic was ordained a a missionary priest of the Society of the Divine Word back in 1938 uh, after studying at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. His life's work was to make God more known and loved through his writings. He published more than 30 books, more than 75 uh, booklets and pamphlets, including his great work, The Hidden Power of Kindness, which is a favorite of our own uh, Terry Barber. But I would say that Father Lavazic is probably best known amongst Catholics today from the little uh, children's books that he put out um, that were printed by Catholic Book Publishing Company. For generations, parents have relied on the Father Lavazic books to get their kids, uh, give their kids a solid foundation in the faith. I still turn to them today 
You know, we have a huge collection having homeschooled uh, six kids. Uh, but Father Lavozic, you know, he had a real gift for, you know, focusing in on and, and, and communicating the essence of these teachings. Uh, and it was, it was a real grace and, and a, real, a real gift that he had. And he continued writing all the way up till 1981 uh, when he retired. And then uh, he passed away about five years after that, I think 1986. So this is a priest who wrote prolifically on the faith both before and after Vatican II. And although the term had not been coined yet, uh, he always employed that hermeneutic of continuity. So um, the quest for Christian unity, I'll just take a, a stab at a couple of uh, points here before we uh, have to close the show, and then we'll be back on this topic next week. And that is um, that Christ willed that all who believe in him would be one, uh, so that the world know, would know uh, that he was sent by the Father. I mean, the, the unity that he prayed for uh, on Holy Thursday was to be assigned to the world. John 17 records his what's called the, the pontifical prayer of Christ, his high priestly prayer uh, um, on the night of the Last Supper. And John 17, 20 and 21 says, I do not pray for them alone, talking about the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word, that all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, I pray that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so today, in all parts of the world, and this is, this is directly out of the document on ecumenism, <clears throat> under the inspiring grace of the Holy Spirit, many efforts are being made in prayer, word, and action to attain that fullness of unity which Jesus Christ desires. This sacred council exhorts all the Catholic faithful to recognize the signs of the times and take an active and intelligent part in the work of ecumenism. See, there's, there's two things that the document says that we must recognize. First is the unique fullness of the Catholic Church. We, the, the Catholic Church has the fullness of the faith and that we believe that to be the ordinary means of salvation, and we desire to share it with uh, all men. That's number one. Number two, more difficult, that we at Catholics can be enriched by insights into the gospel as witnessed by these other Christian traditions. And that's a harder pill to swallow, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, I, I think, well, what do you have that, that you didn't uh, take from the Catholic Church to begin with? And the Church says, I have to be, what, humble? I guess that's the answer. Yeah, yeah, I have to be humble. And, it, and I, I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of something Scott Hahn said years ago uh, about when he was first a professor at the University of Steubenville back in 1990. He said that... Uh, he was, of course, you know, he had been Protestant and had been very anti-Catholic, and I'm sure you know Scott Hahn's story. And then he came into the church and he became very zealous. He became a real apostle for, for the Catholic Church. And Scott told a story that uh, one day Father Mike Scanlon, who was the, uh, the president of the university back in those days, 
a Franciscan priest, he said, he took him aside and told him, you know, Scott, God resists the proud even when they're right. And so that is, it's something to remember that if we are going to enter into any kind of ecumenical activity, if we are going to work together with um, our separated brethren for some common goal, that we have uh, the desire to, you know, uh, to, to share our Catholicism, our Catholicism with them, uh, primarily through example. And I can tell you right now, this is important to understand. I've, I've been doing RCIA, RCIA for 10 years. I've helped scores of people come into the Catholic Church. And while this is not true of everyone, it's largely uh, the case with non-Catholic Christians that they become interested. The reason that they take RCIA, the reason that the Holy Spirit starts moving in them is because they have encountered Catholics in their own life. Not necessarily Catholics who, who tried to evangelize them or tried to, I guess, evangelize isn't the right word, proselytize. They haven't gone to them and said, hey, you need to be Catholic. They've just demonstrated to them that the Catholic Church has so much to offer that they, uh, I remember um, one woman saying just, you know, that she used to pray outside the abortion clinics. She said the Catholics seem to have such an inner peace about them and how compelling it was and how that made her curious. So you can see that that, in, that was in, in an ecumenical activity, praying together with our separated brethren, you know, for, for an end to abortion, which is the scourge of our culture, that, you know, any number of Protestant Christians have been drawn to the Catholic faith, have been drawn to the fullness of their Christian faith so that they can live out the fullness of the grace of their baptism. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And like I say, there is a danger of indifferentism, but that is something that you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? And, and next week we will talk about the, the nuts and bolts of what the church actually teaches, or what Vatican II actually teaches in regard to ecumenism. Uh, not only just what it's, what it's not, but what it is, and how it is a means to an end, how it is, as I titled this uh, episode of the uh, program, the quest for unity and that we join with our separated brethren in that quest to fulfill the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ that his followers would all be one. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. We'll do it all again next week. Um, I want to remind you that next month on the 2nd of October, right at the beginning of the month, uh, I'm going to be joined by Terry Barber here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. And uh, we're going to be doing a Marian conference. It's all Mary, talking about uh, Our Lady under her various titles. Until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.